now I'm more open to failure because I'm understanding that this is a part of my experience and that I will never go up unless I go down. My change in understanding failure is knowing that my presence is more important than where I was and where I'm going. Hi and welcome to Satellizer Conversations, an audio series that seeds encounters and conversations between people coming at topics from different perspectives and orientations, many of whom have never met before. The conversations are based on the lockdown online discursive rehearsal process of Satellizer, a dance for the gallery, a durational performance in which artists cooperate to maintain conversations whilst dancing over the course of a day as co-workers. These conversations reflect intimacies across distances that many of us have experienced through the whole of the project. I'm J.N. Harrington, a UK-based artist and leader of the Satellizer Project across live shows, the podcast series and an online publication, satellizing.com. You can find more information about me by following at inside.i on Instagram or at www.jnharrington.com. Satellizer Conversations are recorded and edited by Rowan Udol at Siobhan Davies Studios, with music composed by Jamie Forth and graphics created by John Philip Sage. The Satellizer Project is produced by Zarina Rosshart and I. For this conversation, Satellizer co-worker Christine Bramwell invited King Ayenge and Amara Aguiliodion to talk with her about compassion, self-compassion, potential and failure across their educational experiences and their professional lives. You'll hear from Christine, King and Amara in a second, but before they get into it, I wanted to flag that we've put some resources in the show notes for anyone affected by any of the experiences discussed. Hello, I'm Christine. I'm a creative worker within my community and you are about to listen to a conversation between me, Omar Regali Odion, and King Ayenge. We are talking about compassion, potential and failure. Um, please be warned, this conversation can get tricky at times. So if there's something that feels too much to listen to, give it a pause and come back later. Thanks. Hi, I'm Amara. Um... I'm a clinical psychologist assistant practitioner, a bit of a mouthful, mm-hmm. but um, I have a youth work, support work, youth justice background that I've been doing for several years um, and I completed my psychology degree as well, just like my fellows here, but on the side I do acting in TV, theatre, performing arts, that's all me. Hey, Christine, thank you. My name is King Hayenge. I'm an aspiring clinical psychologist. I just graduated from uh, my master's in mental health psychological therapies at Queen Mary's University. I, um, prior to that, I completed my undergrad in psychology with you both. I'm also an OCD advocate. And in my spare time, I like to sing, I like to dance, and I also like to cook. 
Yay! We have such an amazing team to go through these topics. Um, I must admit that we have recorded this a million times, so therefore we're going to be really informal and free-flowing, and it's going to be almost like joining us on a FaceTime, I hope, because we are actually friends, so less, I'm just disclaimering it now, so we don't have to have the pressure <laughs> of, of holding on to formalities, okay? So you Jesus. Yeah, you might hear a you might hear a wagwan, so let's just um go through it. It would be great to start with Amara's study, um, and then we can like lead into other things. But Amara, tell us about your amazing study around self-compassion. So um <clears throat> in essence, we looked at the pos- possible impact of self-compassion um on negative self behaviors, so like poor eating behaviors, poor eating habits, um, following stress. So so that's to say, would being self-compassionate have a positive impact on somebody's um, behavior in response to stress? And um, we found that actually self-compassion was important when um, a person had had, was going under, had undergone stress and had experienced um, some sort of challenge or negativity that they needed to um, go through. And that's when self-compassion became quite instrumental. But aside that, self-compassion didn't really have a significance on general sort of behaviors um, across across the board, but it was very impactful when somebody was stressed. And in the last recording that we did, we were talking mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit around um toxic positivity because I was mentioning how it's really hard to maintain that sort of discipline when you're um feeling good to I guess amplify the moments when you're feeling bad so you know mm. like, I'm not gonna start journaling now I'm not gonna start doing the affirmations now because I'm feeling good but when I'm down that's kind of when I need it and I don't have the energy to actually start doing the journaling so I wonder if there was something around um is it beneficial to have that practice before going through a tough time yeah 100 I think it kind of builds up character and resilience in the person um so that when you are faced with like a whirlwind a boomerang you know there's knock you outside your face kind of moments that really blow you off your feet you've got something there you've got something in store that you can kind of whip out the bag um and you're not you know blown away so I think there is a sort of um, there's an element of sharpening the saw there when you um, have these positive behaviours and you practice mindfulness and gratitude and being good and kind to yourself as a way of life. I do get the toxic positivity thing, but I think that some habits are good to sustain and maintain generally, just at least to build up your own sense of self, self-belief, character of character, your worth and um, beyond yeah, because you were mentioning before it was good to have that sort of practice because I can't remember directly what you were saying. It's like um, like fine-tuning yourself. Like You said something really beautiful around it's just really nice to have that introspective moment around yourself because it's like um, like a cherry on your day, like a cherry on top of your day because you're basically saying, you know, what did I do today? How did I help myself? Can- yeah, I think I was saying that... Um- in this age that we're in now with social media and um, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of toxicity out there and a lot of negativity out there that really challenges um, our sense of self and pushes us to, you know, unrealistic ideals of our image, our identity, our bodies, our our thoughts even really so you know having to navigate that it seems it, it's like best practice in a way to have um, a mechanism that can kind of sustain you throughout that because you don't know what you're going to come across at what point at what time and you want to kind of give yourself the best leverage against you know against these kind of um experiences um you know, we know how comments and um, image and visuals and aesthetics can be. And sometimes they, they can really seep into our own perspectives and um, interpretations of the world. So if we have something that will buffer that, if it's just your 10, 20 minutes in the day that you're taking out to really kind of guard and guide yourself, um, as to remind yourself who you are, what you have, why you're worth it, you know, to whom you belong, then... It, I think it gives I, I think it gives you an advantage in these um, crazy times. <laughs> in the it, crazy streets, I agree. That whole um, guard and ground yourself. Did you say guard and ground? Is like guard and guide. Guard and guide. Guard and guide is is important, but it's like guard and guide and ground. It's the three Gs. It's, it's just the three Gs. Yeah, like three that's Gs. What we need. We need that yeah, those things each day. Yeah. I wish there were more um resources that we could like run to. So you're mentioning in the previous one, you didn't mention now, um, in like what the tools actually were, like because you said journaling, and then what else did you say? Yeah, writing a um um a love letter to yourself, um, having positive affirmations, um, practicing gratitude about your, you know, yourself, your life, looking at things within, um, highlighting the, I guess the, 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 the beauty about oneself, writing a little forgiveness to oneself as well, stuff like that. These are all self-compassion exercises. Because mm. sometimes that um the word self compassionate is like I don't really link those things to a lot of like scripture and the, the things that you said is very scripture based. It's like mm. such an intimate thing to write to yourself each day to say like Wow, hun, you're you look so amazing and I'm so proud of you. Mm. Such a um intimate experience to have with yourself and I kind of personally would use scripture as a today was really tough it's like you know um Eminem when he's like sorry mom um <laughs> that stuff and he's like writing it's like really angry <laughs> that's kind of um how I use scripture where it's just like super mad but let's pass it on to King Alicious because King maybe this is a perfect time to mention the sort of tools that you've found with your research Yes, uh, thank you, Christine. That's very interesting, Amara, actually, because um, you talk a lot about techniques such as journaling, such as writing a love letter, and that is very is similar to my topic of research. I um, I assess the effects of internet-based um, cognitive behavioral therapy in treating OCD. Um, the golden standard for treating OCD, obviously, OCD is a mental health disorder. I'm sure you have all heard of OCD. And in fact, actually, when you guys think of OCD, what do you guys both think of? 
I think of um, repetitive movements. Okay. And, um, I think of repetitive movements uh, and... I always, for me, when I think of OCD, I think of light switches, but I think it's because yeah. in my head there's a visual for a film that I watch of somebody that had OCD and it was because... I was switching on the... Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Amara? Um, because I... I think because of my work generally, yeah, I think it's... Um, I see it as some, something that's a lot more like restrictive. So it's not just about a repeated behavior, but the mm -hmm. amount of harm that it causes for the person to be able to live their lives daily. Mm -hmm. Like they're not, these are um, ritual behaviors that restrict mm -hmm. capacity to do other stuff and yeah. kind of rule over their autonomy as well and mental well-being as mm -hmm. well as well-being. Yeah. 100%. Does, the reason I was asking is because I feel like um, within media, there's like a perception of what OCD is, and there's much more to that than what um, is actually portrayed in media. Everyone thinks of OCD as, you know, constantly washing your hands, as you say, Christine, flicking on the lights, but there's so much different aspects of OCD that people do not know of, you know? There's different types of OCD, for example, such as harm OCD, people obsessing about harming others, sexuality OCD where people obsess about um, sexuality concerns relationship OCD where um, there's people obsess about faith around relationship it's a lot more to what is portrayed in media and I feel like um, within research we're starting, they're starting to become an interest within um, OCD because um, it's an anxiety disorder that is increasing in prevalence so um, my research was really centred around um, assessing whether um, internet-based cognitive behavioural therapy um, is more effective than face-to-face -face cognitive behavioural therapy, which obviously cognitive behavioural therapy is a is a form of um, is the golden standard actually that um, the golden standard in which we um, treat OCD with. So um, if someone is if someone is dealing with OCD that will be recommended to complete like maybe 12 weeks of CBT. So my research was kind of trying to see like whether internet-based uh, CBT ha is more effective than face-to-face -face CBT because at the moment there is an increase in cases of OCD following the pandemic. Obviously it makes sense, you know, we've been told to wash our hands, you know, to keep clean. This is going to obviously spike um, fears and people who are dealing with OCD, contamination OCD. So it, my research was focusing on that. And again, you know, CBT is just like it's a behavioural therapy, which involves a lot of techniques, like Amara was saying, um, to kind of help with this daily stresses, obviously. You know, OCD is something that can really take over someone's life and really interfere with their um being able to, you know, maintain the everyday activities. So there's lots of different techniques, like um, listing two positive things to counter one negative thing, or, you know, uh, meditation, sitting down with the thought, um, challenging yourself, confronting your fears, journaling, you know, journaling your worries, journaling your thoughts, record that diary, record diary, recording it recording your thoughts in a diary it's all techniques um that help in um, treating OCD and um my research just looked at whether there's a difference in 
performing this therapy face to face and performing it virtually and how that affects the treatment of OCD. Sweet, thank you. I think there's a lot of the, from what you're saying is both of the links are to do with um, scripture and some sort of, I mean, your element was less to do with compassion. It was kind of more to do with the practical things, but I wonder if CBT has any sort of compassionate elements, like how does... Um, yes. Uh, sorry, I, I went actually, I forgot to bring that in. <laughs> but I was going to say that there is a link to compassion and um, my topic in general with CBT and OCD because obviously when it comes to OCD, it's all about an individual's anxiety and individual's fears that manifests in different forms, such as contamination OCD, such as it's all based on the fear, it's all based on the anxiety that causes you to conduct rituals to lessen the fears. And the best way of explaining it when it comes to compassion is just to give you an example. So an individual, for example, that is um, fearing, is dealing with harm OCD. They deal with intrusive um, thoughts and obsessions about harming others and harming themselves, like maybe getting thoughts of um, stabbing their mum, for example, continuously. Even if they don't want to, they will continue to get those thoughts. So CBT comes in by just allowing that individual to understand that the thoughts are just thoughts and it's not, it's not real, it's just your mind going on. So in order to kind of lessen the thoughts is you have to allow yourself to allow it to happen allow the thoughts to happen just let it flow so um compassion is very important in this is because you have to recognize that you are not your thoughts no matter how bad how in, in, like intrusive your thoughts may be you need to have the compassion to understand that this is just your mind doing what your mind can do so compassion is very important because in 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 relation to OCD because you need to you really need to have that self-compassion to with yourself to realize that your thoughts are your thoughts and they're not a representation of who you are period it felt like maybe I'm not sure if we should have some sort of trigger warning because you you went a little bit deep there so a little bit of a late trigger warning but that was like you were a little bit triggered yeah um, I guess I'm trying to find some sort of ways because you you were both mentioning this sort of like this scripture self-compassion saying it's important to have self-compassion but I still in some ways don't understand what self-compassion is because mm. you are saying self-compassion involves letting things flow like mm. to understand that in this moment um you cannot control what is happening and that's like true presence you can't control mm. how you're thinking mm. leaving your environment so you need to just go with it and that's a part of self-compassion but mm. i like i don't know what would be the key things like if i had to create a self-compassion manual what mm. would the what would that involve like how do we even define um do you want to go tomorrow um for me okay in relation to my uh, research field i will say self-compassion is all about um acceptance and understanding um ocd is obviously a clinical issue that can really um interfere with your everyday life and just make you think assume the worst about everything and just make you believe your fears 
um, and anxieties as reality. So in relation to self-compassion, I will say that it's just acceptance and understanding of the situation and understanding that this is a clinical issue that you can't con essentially you can't control your mind you can't control the thoughts that appear in your mind the thoughts that occur so the compassion comes in as in like you just have to allow it accept it accept it and allow it to happen once you allow it once you accept it you understand that this is not true it's just like your fears it's just your anxiety manifesting within your mind ca causing you to do the rituals causing you to have the obsessions but once you understand that it will lessen that fear and you will be and you will be able to recover not sure if you understand if that answers your question christine but um in relation to obviously my research topic and field i would say self-compassion is all about acceptance and understanding of the disorder okay um uh for me I think, I guess I see self-compassion in three ways. Two, that's based on my research, and one <coughs> as my own interpretation, right? So on the one hand, self-compassion by one psycholo psychologist is um, the ability to um, be sensitive to one's suffering and try and alleviate it and prevent it both in oneself and in other people yeah to another psychologist self-compassion is um it's still about being sensitive to um suffering or um negativity but it's more about being non-judgmental about it and understanding that suffering is necessary and it's universal um to navigate human experience and then I think for me self-compassion is um the ability to be um to love oneself unapologetically like you don't need a you don't need to look for a reason to be kind or loving to yourself like no matter how compassionate you can be with other people it's the baseline at the end of the day is how compassionate can you be with yourself you love to help other people you love to um be kind and do good to others and take care of others can you do that for yourself do you give yourself that same energy do you give yourself that same love without having to try and find a reason for it or a basis as to to justify why you're deserving of that that love and that kindness um, and accepting yourself for who you are Hmm. Ah, that's very true because I was thinking what did you say something about like um suffering as a part of the human experience yeah 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 and that like a little section on on this I mean it kind of leads us into understanding failure like you know what is failure for us my apologies I've got this cat and he's like going Ooh, crazy nice. yeah he's like trying to join a conversation but um failure because what you're saying is suffering is a part of our experience and a big part of self-compassion is understanding that because of, we are human the human experience involves suffering so yeah. then how do we navigate failure like how do we actually say you know um I don't know we are all not good at these things and I guess it it would be nice to talk about that with both of you because experience was such an interesting one where we came across a lot of <laughs> positives but also 
a lot of negatives. So like how, I don't know how at that time we dealt with failure, but what would be the difference between how we're dealing with failure now and and how we dealt with it in the past? Interesting. I mean, Christine, for, like, I think you should lead that one. Like, what <laughs> was it like for you? In failure. Mm-hmm. Like, what were the differences in how you dealt with? I think um, now, yeah, everyone needs to unmute themselves because let's have this conversation. Let's talk about failure. <laughs> when I'm thinking about failure, sometimes I know that within myself I have so much resistance for it like I hate the fact that I'd fail at something and I hate the fact that I could be perceived in a negative way so I try to run away from failure a lot but I end up failing a lot because I think I run away from it um and I think maybe we shouldn't be saying at our university at our university our old university um I think I failed by not being able to ask for help and I think I relied a lot on my friends um in a way of like trying to have the uni experience but I really struggled to ask for help through the authorities like through going to see a counsellor or just going to a teacher and saying that I really needed help because I struggled to find my voice in asking for help um and I'm not sure if that's to do with the frame of the university because it was really difficult to ask for help there because you kind of barely got to see a teacher um but I think now within um my current stage of life I think I'm a lot I'm more open to failure because I think I'm understanding that this is a part of my experience and that I will never go up unless I go down like I will never be able to progress unless I um can move from a place and sometimes that place is not going to be the place that you want to head to and I think that's the only way I can look at it because yeah so I don't know maybe that doesn't answer anything but I think my um change in understanding failure is knowing that my presence is more important than where I was and where I'm going and I have to harness my presence in order to go forward and by harnessing my presence that means I need to ask for help what it was that too much jargon what's harnessing my presence man um I'm, I'm basically saying I know now I'm ground I feel like I'm more grounded now and I feel more confident in asking for help whereas before I was just like help what the what the frick is that yeah mm-hmm. um I would just add on to that and just say, um, obviously, my experience at was very interesting. Um, in relation to failure, it's very interesting because um, in my journey of life, you know, self-compassion, um, you know, working on myself, my my philosophy and mindset about failure has really changed because I believe that uh, failure does not exist until I give up. And like Amara was saying, uh, suffering is a part of life. So mistakes, you know, are bound to happen. Until I give up, I haven't failed. Um, in relation to my experience in that university that we don't say its name, even though we did say its name like five times before, <laughs> um, I would just say that um, 
I guess this is part of the journey as well with Azilia, and we'll speak about this later on, is um, failing to recognise a clinical issue. I really believe that when in my uh, experience at university, I was dealing with um, anxiety and an onset of OCD that I did not understand. Had I gone and reached out for support, this is my fault, by the way, um, maybe it would have helped me in, you know, dealing with certain issues better because it's interesting because obviously I've just completed my master's and I feel like my experience was so much smoother than with the undergrad. And, you know, they always say that the master's is more intense than undergrad, but I felt like I flourished in an aspect compared to uh, my undergrad. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know, you know, I don't really know, like, if I'm being honest, how I've navigated failure any differently, if at all, to be honest. And I think that's because I've always been um, a, a sort of, when I get to a certain point, I'm I'm like an effort. It is what it is kind of person mm. which I think is a form of self-compassion in itself like I won't allow that I won't allow that thing to overwhelm me or subdue me I think that probably that change probably came before you know the uni from hell as opposed to after and that's probably why I was able to kind of quickly see that you know what this isn't really conducive I'm not really effing with this I need to I need to move on I need to kind of um step out of this toxic <laughs> evil space that we call uni. <laughs> yeah, but um and I and I and I and I think I started to celebrate um during that time as well is when I really started to celebrate things like small wins, you know, handing in my assignments on time, you know, getting help with statistics, you know, all of these little things that were so irrelevant to me before or inconsequential started to have meaning or value for me that yet yeah, oh my gosh we just stayed in the library for 10 hours even though we spent six hours of that sleeping you know these were <laughs> these are real life stuff we did guys real life stuff you get and we 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 celebrated each other for that we celebrated those little wins so um when so when i when there were you know, failures and stuff, it was kind of, it was so easy to turn it and be like, okay, but what about this angle? And, you know, actually this means that you still get to, you know, proceed with the course or proceed with the year or um, you can really, um, now you know where you're not really strong, you know, just spin it somehow. So, yeah, if I'm being honest, I think that journey started probably before that uni from hell and during the uni from hell and not necessarily afterwards maybe this is just uh an hour-long conversation around the uni from hell yeah maybe it's just a safe space (laughs) a safe space (laughs) this has to be a safe space just to talk about uh um the uni that shall not be named. Yeah, because we were really napping for six hours in the library. And yeah, it, they really stressed us out. And no amount of guys so are going to work the, for The question is, why were we napping? Why were why we, we napping? napping? Because we were ever worked and burnt out. 
period exactly and I think we didn't notice it at that time because we actually we did a lot of library visits and a lot of that library visit was us sleeping in the nighttime and then having one hour and I have this distinct memory of napping and then waking up and then something happened and, and King was like oh yeah we should go home it just felt like we went to an all-nighter but it was like half of the night and <laughs> yeah <laughs> mornings and we're like that. yeah I'm gonna go home now it's like two or three a.m we're just gonna mm. go home um oh, the security guards knew us guys like they became part of our family the security yeah, yeah. I mean so- I think they became a part of your family because you knew them and they were letting you in yeah yeah <laughs> Beyond, beyond my time at the uni from hell. Beyond my time at the uni from hell. That's how. Listen. Yeah, I think it, it was, was like. Sorry to cut your mind. What you saying? No, no. I was just saying it was much. It was definitely a, a very overwhelming experience. It Emotionally, was. Yeah. Draining. You know, like you could be halfway yeah, through. Like, um... Your, I don't know what was it like. Your module was changing. All this bullshit. Sorry, all this trash. It's just absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like self-compassion was, you know, one of the mechanisms we survived. You know, when we used to have our pet talks before exams, when we used to talk to each mm. other in the lab, like, you know, you mm. like, you've done, actually, you've done all right. You've done enough words for today. Don't kill yourself. And I, and I would, we would embody those words, you know what I mean? We would absorb them. That mm. it's true, you know, mm. like, I've just done 20 hours, no sleep. Mm. I can't have a break. Mm. It's okay. The uni is actually just from hell. It's not me. It's not me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah exactly what you were saying. and it's interesting as well can i just add because like i was saying i believe failure does not exist until we give up we didn't give up and it's yeah. interesting that when we when we all moved from that institution we flourished you know and we had better experiences because i feel like that's the key i know obviously okay i will say that because towards the end i did reach out for support and it was interesting because the support was there i won't deny but the the key is we were burnt out and we were overworked, you know. And we have we went when we had gone to other institutions and on other things, that feeling wasn't there, you know. Yeah, and that's important to consider. Yeah, and I think because we were kind of able to notice that quicker, we were able to be more um kind and merciful to ourselves as well. Like mm-hmm. I think I think one of those key moments that wow, this is this is it's not me, it's them, or, you know, I'm actually, I've actually done what I can, was when we were deceived by that (laughs) that statistics lady. I can't remember her name, thank God I can't remember. I know her name, but I'm not going to say it. Yeah, don't say her name. (laughs) No, we can't name and shame. No names. All of us that we had, you know, we had done all the appropriate stuff and Mm met the um you know we were gonna meet criteria for the exam and boom boom all the grades were we i think we tried to even write a petition or something like that or the students union was like we wanted our papers remarked i think it was for that statistics paper am i right no people were petitioning because no uh so there were they told us to focus on the part of uh, the course for the exam we go into the exam, we open the exam paper, the questions are completely different. So we were misled. <laughs> we were misled. 
being misled. And it was it was a disastrous. It so was. I don't know what you're saying, Amara. He exited that me, cell with pain. Mm-hmm. 100%. You know, I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry, Christine Caprica. <laughs> no, I was going to say a lot of what you said, Amara, it, when it came to like, oh, having that self-compassion to understand that sometimes it isn't you, it's something else, also involves mm. the collective experience. So like, yes. has to be a part of the collective experience. Like, it's not just something that you can have yeah. with yourself. It has to be something that people can put into you as well like we need to be able to have to give each other those words of affirmation so a little bit of saying like you need to have a company you know like if we didn't have each other where would we be (laughs) but the the failure is the self and it's also the frame like Mm. outside of you like i think Mm. the biggest part of also me trying to not do the blame game because i love saying oh yeah I know like it cannot be me it must be everything else like it can't be me I'm in this framework and this framework is making me fail but sometimes you actually are in um a space where it's actually encouraging your failure because there is no there's you you cannot survive within that yeah you know some of us did not know about the support that was out there until the end so that could have created an issue you know I know, for example, let me just give you an example. I know that because um, with obviously anxiety, OCD, I can overthink and stress, which causes me to procrastinate. And just because I become so overwhelmed by all of the anxiety and the stress, it stops me from working. And then it's like, you know, I just leave everything last last minute, you know. If I had, you know, maybe some, like, support from a counsellor, from a therapist that will help me ease that stress, it could have effect, it could have really helped my performance in that university. However, we do, they do need to take accountability in the collective, like, you know, notion that we were overworked and we were, you know, stressed. I don't think they care because that's almost like the school structure, you know. We can mm. have a conversation. Maybe this there's a place here to talk about it, just mm. around that sort of mental health in um that into in academics. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we deal with mental health and academics in general? Mm. A lot of us were battling with personal issues, mm. things outside of things that were outside of us that we couldn't control and we were still really expected to perform well because if you weren't performing well then that's our whole future on the line and that really um especially if you're coming from a working class background and you know work and also take part in uni it is um it isn't like good soil basically the university should be able to know these things we should be we should feel comfortable saying you know I'm also working is there flexibility in this is it is there mm. learning in this way so then we kind of yeah I'm a little bit anti-school at the moment but you know what I mean it's it's difficult it's difficult for us to talk about mental health without talking about how academics actually impacted all of our mental health yeah people who went through the academic journey yeah. I don't know of anybody that um felt absolutely sane and maybe I only have crazy homies but I don't know anyone that felt absolutely um sane throughout the academic journey I know people that felt sane but (laughs) they felt sane but the way they went about things were not healthy you know there was something that was compromised you know either their well-being 
or they're engaged in, you know, stuff to kind of cope with, like, the stresses, if that makes sense, you know? Mm-hmm, telling us a tea, but without... <laughs> Basically, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, yeah. The system... It's a system, isn't it? And it doesn't really serve the full purpose of which it's built. And I think there's that conflict that makes us experience all these unnecessary tensions and frustrations and pits and falls because we we can sense, we can feel we're experiencing this, you know, us being engulfed in a system that doesn't really meet our needs like that. Um, And I'm talking on several levels now, several angles. Um, As a black woman, as um, someone from a lower caste background, um, it just, you know, culturally, economically, it's just not really meeting my needs like that. So that coupled with the fact that, you know, it's something that is it's almost, it's, it's, a, it's a necessity in some ways, you know, it's definitely now anyway, that up until the age of 18, you know, which means that even if um, someone didn't have ideas or thoughts of you know, continuing with higher education, this is this is just a part of their, this is uh, the entirety of their youth and their childhood and stuff, which wasn't like, it wasn't like that in my day or your day. So, yeah, when the system is not really meeting the needs as, as it ought to, then you, you know, what should be like normal, I don't know, exam stress, school stress, I feel like it's just heightened, it's just exacerbated by this friction um with identity with self like it's just you know and even some some research that I did I don't even know why or what I can't remember but I know that um for example representation has a big impact on a child's or person's academic performance like if they can see themselves being represented in the teaching hierarchy and all their teachers um, and in the classroom, that will positively impact their educational attainment. But, bro, like, if um, if we're surrounded, and this is not to be, you know, doing blame, 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 but if we're surrounded or immersed in a system that we have no choice but to be in and it's not really meeting the fullness of our needs, then, yeah, naturally, it's, it's, it's going to be really hard to... Um, bounce back from typical low points of exam stress and um you know assignment as, uh, you know as, assignment labor and all these aspects of education that just get to you studying revising having time for you know balancing your work and your life and stuff because you know we have to, a lot of us were working and studying because we we couldn't afford not to do you know what i'm saying so i think that's why, that's what makes it worse. That's what makes it harder. That's what makes it difficult for us, basically. I don't know. No, I agree. Yeah, I truly agree. I mean, some parts of like, I think representation is such a wide conversation because there are some spaces where I feel like we need representation and some some spaces where representation gets a little bit funny sometimes, you know, like, 
um, things where we should be creating stories for ourselves, we're like putting ourselves in stories that aren't really um, made for us. So then it just creates some sort of um, tension. Um, so like, I completely agree that in terms of academic success or just being able to feel like there's a point in what you're doing, you need to see yourself within that system already. Like we want to be psychologists because we actually saw, um, let's say for us, black women, for King, black men as psychologists and doing really exciting work. Um, and we kind of had a, I'm not sure we had much of a glimpse of that black women wise in um, but we did have Mr. And maybe I shouldn't say his name. Sorry, bleep it. And you said the uni. You said yeah. the name and the uni. Yeah, and the uni. Sorry, I, we're gonna bleep it. But we and that, <laughs> that really, because <laughs> it was almost like um, you could see yourself within that role. If you can't see yourself within a role, then how? It's almost I don't know. It feels like you're walking up a hill it's like walking up a hill that nobody else has been on you can't see any other footprints and you're just gonna get tired like before you even get to the hill you're like there's nobody else up there so why yeah. would I want to do that why would I want to tackle this hill and some people are really interested in being the explorer the first person that that does this but it is really um it takes a lot of mental strength to be the first person to do stuff, to be the only people in spaces, to think that even though you aren't the first or the only, but in the space that you're in, your physical space that you're in, it can feel so isolating. Um, yeah. Uni shouldn't really feel like that. It shouldn't feel like such an, an exclusive space when, when it's meant to be inclusive learning. Like this is meant to be the only space where we're all feeling free enough to say, yeah, I see my place within this world. I see my place within this field. And it, it I feel like academics sometimes make you feel like, oh, you actually shouldn't enter there because you don't see yourself. And it, it's a lot of work and you don't see yourself. So what would be the point? Um, so I'm really proud of you both for actually um, maintaining that journey for yourselves and, and beating the odds in that case, because the uni that shall not be named kind of gave us an experience that made us feel like maybe we wouldn't for me anyway which is why I stopped we wouldn't actually be um what we wanted to be and that was just to be psychologists like we wanted to go and we wanted to help other people we wanted to help ourselves and it's kind of hard you know wanting to help um yourself and other people when you cannot even see yourself and other people in that space people that look like you in that space um and it kind of links back to we're moving on to this idea of potential because you know compassion potential and failure those things um have an uh have an internal place but they also have an external place um and I think when I was thinking about potential I kind of thought you know a little bit around our uh night trips to the library and this idea that we had to push ourselves so hard that we were like staying overnight to really work and and the things that we still do now to to really work hard and to um push ourselves to go above and beyond and it's kind of outside of black excellence it's more to do of like how do we allow ourselves to understand what potential we need to put where you know like there's a sort of balance that I think um for people who are used to working hard, you know, don't really have, you know, we don't have the sort of, how do we apply the right amount of energy to this thing? You know, it's always like, go hard or go home. 
you know I don't know if is this making sense or we're like kind of sitting we want to go to the library so bad and we're like we need to do this work so bad but we end up sleeping because we're really overwhelmed by the fact that we need to do this so bad <laughs> it's not good enough it's not good enough what what we do to ourselves and that's probably a lack of self-compassion yeah. but at the same time I feel like there's there's that element of grinding when it comes to education as well like there's that element of doing the most which is prevalent across culturally you know um cross socially as well it's just it's kind of how the game goes but we it wasn't going we were doing the most and still the output was <laughs> highly concerning <laughs> <laughs> but, the output but was like what can we actually say when it comes to that like you know when you're putting all of your energy into this one thing and it and the outcome is so bad that you're thinking I don't know what why does that happen it's like there is a method that we weren't we didn't know that we should use or could have used mm. we were really going ham and we were not getting the best grades I mean, I think towards the day end, you guys got banging grades, but I was never getting any good grades. And I was in the library like, yeah, in the library like Einstein. Hey. Hey. <laughs> that is funny. I think um, it's almost like we're winding down and we're trying to find ways of winding down. I'm going to listen to this. I feel like we touched on some things. But is there like out of this thing around like um what have we learned I think it'd be nice to say like have we taken part in any sort of self-compassionate practices ourselves like what do we do um for me I'll go first with this one I I've always been a journaler like all my life so I guess that's a form of self-compassion but I think I've directed it more um in a self-compassionate style by having like prompted by doing prompted journaling you know where they ask me questions about myself um my thoughts my day as opposed to just journaling generally and I tell myself when I'm when I'm reaching my limit normally or usually I would you know push myself beyond um in a way that can be quite harmful sometimes like it might suffer my sleep or my eating and stuff like that because I want to get something done but then I just tell myself ah ah Mara go and buy yourself a nice pair of trainers you've <laughs> tried you've done so well today that's that's okay darling you will not die if you completed tomorrow you will not die so yeah that's the kind of thing I tell myself and that's me being self-compassionate. I actually bought this gratitude journal as well. But it's too abstract for me right now. Like, it's, it makes me want to... It makes me go through memory lane and I have to sit there and be like, hmm, when was the last time I was kind to a stranger? Let me think about that. It's just it's too much on my brain mentally. It's quite tasking. But, yeah, those are the ways that I um, try and do self-care. But I think something I want to improve is my sleep. I need to think about my relationship with sleep and self-care and stuff in um, terms of like the bigger picture of what health looks like. I can't keep segregating sleep as its own entity, like it just exists you know, unilaterally in its own universe. 
it's part of my well-being as well mm-hmm. I like that we should all be able to say you know what just buy yourself the ting man why why are you holding on to it buy yeah. yourself the ting. but also there's um there is a lot of financial um anxiety and I think that's another podcast that's another conversation listen financial anxiety I feel like that's a genetic I need to find a research I need to find a study something that tells it says it runs in the genes because there is something why is it so hard to be able to say I deserve to have this so I'm going to be able to buy it to myself obviously if you cannot physically afford it you can't physically afford it but this is talking about you know you just got paid you have a spare 50 pounds you might want to say yo let me I haven't done my nails in a month I would actually like to treat myself to this thing but it feels like you cannot treat yourself we are moving you know the bankers these days are saying if you just cut your Netflix cut your Spotify you can afford a house in about get out that's what's internally like we're holding on to this idea that if you don't eat more leaves we're gonna you know we're gonna do something amazing I'm just letting everyone know we will if you cannot afford it you cannot afford it if we cannot afford it we cannot afford it i kind of love that, will, that journaling is definitely for her yeah um, i would say as well um for me uh i feel like acceptance and understanding like i was saying before is really important um i feel like um in terms of compassion like there's certain things that i know christine you will understand what i'm talking about that i've just had to learn to understand so that i can accept for example, um, like, you know, with certain stresses and certain worries that I have in regards to my mind, my consolation and compassion to myself is usually just that this is something that I can't control. My mind is going to be heightened, you know, with stress and thoughts at this particular time because I'm stressed and there's nothing really that I can do about it, but just to embrace it and to accept it, you know, so I feel like, you know, that play acceptance and understanding plays a big role in my um in my journey of self-compassion okay thank you king um looking back at the three terms we were meant to discuss if you could give someone a piece of advice around i guess looking at it honing it um supporting compassion or potential what would you suggest? I, I would I would choose compassion and I would say that um just always remember your compass point. You know, no matter how far wide or out you go, compassion is always bringing it back to yourself that I am me and I deserve to be here, just like the moon, just like the stars, just like everyone else. I deserve to be here to take up space, take up room, and be me in that room. That's it. That let that be a compass point at the time, no matter how far out you go. Um, I would just say a little something about failure, and I would say before during the podcast that failure does not exist until you give up. So always remember that. Until you give up, failure does not exist. Okay. Um, If I had to pass down some advice around the term potential or using potential, even though we've barely touched on it throughout this discussion, 
I guess I would say use that term wisely within your life. Um, Approach potential in a personal aspect and not a societal aspect or like a surfaced, I'm going to say aspect again, I've said it too many times, but don't allow somebody else's idea of your potential to change your idea of potential for who you are. Um, Personally, I think it's a little bit of a toxic word. You've got potential. You know, when someone says you've got potential, it's like, you're right, but you can be better. Um, And of course, it kind of highlights a journey. It's not always said in a negative way. But I think I would just say be careful how you use it in regards to yourself. Because you have more than potential, babes. Um, And as I said at the beginning... This conversation got a little bit tricky at some points. So if you need any sort of like resources or ways to help yourself to think more around compassion and I guess these terms, I would suggest looking deeper into um, the NAP ministry. Everyone knows I love the NAP ministry, but if you haven't heard of the NAP ministry, um, dig deeper into them. Uh, and also I would say check out the resiliency circle the resilience circle uh they have a lot of resources around climate anxiety which i think sometimes you're all suffering from climate anxiety without actually knowing but they have a lot of resources around climate anxiety and how to kind of approach living a positive life amongst chaos um and lastly i'd like to say take some time out for yourself buy yourself that thing live your best life and stay blessed. Thanks. The Satellizer Project is realised using funds from the National Lottery through Arts Council England, Bonnie Bird Choreography Fund and John Elliman Foundation through Continuous Network. Continuous is a partnership between Siobhan Davies Studios and Baltic Centre for Contemporary Art, You can find out more by visiting continuousdance.com.